Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. We are finding out that politics and the law are sometimes about separate ways of looking at the world. The law is often about the past. It's about adjudicating events that have happened, laws that have been broken, and punishments that should be meted out. In the public sphere, particularly with respect to Donald Trump, we see it playing out with January 6th, past tax violations, stolen documents, and the results of past elections. Politics, on the other hand, is about what's ahead. It's about how imagining, defining, and enacting policy and laws will shape our individual and collective future. While we've all been focused on the law of late, many have missed the political discussions taking place on the far right under the moniker of national conservatism. A set of ideas and potential policies that pull together all the forces that Trump has unleashed. This is more than just traditional populism. It's a set of ideas that bear little resemblance to traditional conservatism. It's an intellectual framework that does nothing short of turn back every idea from the Enlightenment to the evolution of America since the 1950s. Not to take anything away from the legal proceedings that are currently underway with respect to Trump, the forces that he has unleashed as voiced in the gathering of national conservatives last week which included over 100 speakers, 23 panels, and three U.S. senators, governors, and billionaires, are where our eyes should be focused. We're going to talk about that today with my guest, William Galston. William Galston holds a chair in the Brookings Institution's Governance Studies Program, where he serves as a senior fellow. He was the Saul Stern Professor and Acting Dean at the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland and Director of the Institute of Philosophy in Public Policy, as well as Founding Chair of the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement. He's been a participant in six presidential campaigns and served as Deputy Assistant to President Clinton for Domestic Policy. He's the author of nine books and more than 100 articles. One of his most recent articles deals with the issue of national conservatism and appeared recently in the Persuasion Substack. It is my pleasure to welcome Professor William Galston here to the Who, What, Why podcast. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Sure, my pleasure. Well, it's great to have you here. How long has this idea of national conservatism as something we can define and name, how long has it been around? National conservatism is between three and four years old. It was, it was founded, uh, at least as a formal organization, principally by an Israeli political philosopher born in America, but who went to Israel uh, many years ago by the name of Yoram Hazoni. Uh, He made a splash a few years ago uh, with his book, uh, The Virtue of Nationalism, uh, and he has now bookended that with an even weightier tome entitled, if memory serves, Conservatism, a Rediscovery. And uh, you put those together, you have the National Conservative Creed, which has been reduced to a statement of principles that many hundreds of people have have signed. Uh, The basic idea is that we have gone fundamentally wrong as a society and as a civilization uh, because we have tried to build on the foundation of enlightenment ideas, the kinds of abstract principles 
that uh, we encounter, for example, in the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. And Hazoni uh, uh, is fundamentally critical of all such principles, and he's particularly critical of what he calls liberal principles, liberal in the political and philosophical sense, not the political sense, on the grounds that they lead to an atomization of society, a destruction of, of tradition, and a fundamental forgetting of what makes us human as a species, which is our communal life uh, framed by a single religion, uh, which will shape our public as well as our private lives. How much of this emerged as a way to, to take advantage of the forces that Trump has unleashed, the idea of, of the populism that started to rise up, and taking advantage of that with respect to the kind of culture war issues that we have seen percolating for so long, and this became a kind of ideological framework to incorporate all of that. It's that and more. You know, Hazoni and other leaders of the movement, such as the political theorist Patrick Deneen from Notre Dame, have taken advantage of a fraught moment, and I don't fault them for this, uh, to put forward an interpretation of what they regard as, as a crisis, a moment of crisis, requires in order to re repair our country and even more grandly the world. Uh, and this is a traditional function of intellectuals, indeed of political philosophy, uh, to seize moments of crisis, as Thomas Hobbes did, for example, uh, while the rubble of the English Civil War was still bouncing, uh, and turn it into a novel doctrine uh, or outlook, which can then be used to reshape practical life. In many ways, this bears little resemblance to traditional kind of Burkean conservatism. Talk about that. I think that many of them regard themselves as disciples of Burke. Uh, there's, a raging, there's a raging debate as to how faithful they are uh, to Burke's deepest intentions, whether Burke rejected principles uh, to, the, to the same extent as they do. There's no question about the fact that Burke's opposition to the French Revolution was, ad, was animated by what he regarded as dangerous abstract principles that were being used to establish every vestige of the old order. Uh, and Burke didn't believe that you could practice that kind of etch-a-sketch politics, where you just erased the old order and, and replaced it with something different. Uh, there is a certain irony here, because you could well argue uh, that the principles of the Declaration of Independence are not just words on paper, but they are at the heart of our national tradition. And so I think you can make a compelling Burkean argument that for that reason, if no other, uh, one ought to be respectful of that tradition. Uh, but the national conservatives 
I think, have larger ambitions. They, they, they want to replace those founding principles with a different interpretation of the U.S. tradition, uh, which they argue is a direct descendant of a strand of English conservatism that does not rely on natural rights or the enlightenment way of thinking about the world. So I don't think, strictly speaking, their approach is Burkean. Uh, They appeal to Burke, uh, but I think a sound appeal to Burke would lead them to very different conclusions. (laughs) Certainly it is far afield from any conservative instinct for moderation that we might have seen in the past. It's, It's almost revolutionary in its fervor. Yes. Well, I think they believe that moderation in the pursuit of virtue is no virtue, uh, that this is a, this is a moment of crisis, uh, and moments of crisis require strong responses, not timid incrementalism. Uh, and I would, I would say the spirit of national conservatism, uh, is not conservative. It's, revolutionary, or to put it more accurately, counter-revolutionary. They believe that there has been a revolution in American society, uh, that it has fundamentally transformed our order, and that a counter-revolution is needed in order to get the society back on course, and in effect, to put it on new foundations. One of the ideas that that was put forth by so many of the speakers at this this conference last week and that we hear over and over again and, and, and seems to run counter to what we think of as conservatism is a huge role for the federal government and even state governments particularly in, in pushing back and using its power to institute some of these ideas. Uh, that is correct. Uh you could describe national conservatism as libertarianism with a minus sign. Libertarians claim to be, and to some extent are, in favor of very limited government in both the economic and cultural spheres. National conservatives are in favor of strong government in both the economic and cultural spheres. They want strong government in the economy, uh, to protect and build up national industries. They are anti-globalist, uh, both as an economic strategy and as a way of thinking. And in the realm of culture, they, they believe that the dominant cultural institutions have fallen so completely under the sway of people they refer to as woke progressives that only an application of political power will suffice uh, to purify our culture and restore it to a more uh, conservative and uh, moral and religious condition. Talk about how far they want to push government power in these areas. There is a very interesting conversation going on among nationalists who are thinking about the economy. Some appeal to Alexander Hamilton's report on manufacturers, 
you know, as the urtext for the idea that the federal government and to some extent the state government should be actively involved in promoting certain industries and in protecting them against foreign competition, certainly until they're strong enough to stand on their own. And indefinitely, if foreign countries are in the steady business of subsidizing their own industries and trying to wipe out ours. Uh, And that is not only a a live argument, I think it's a necessary argument. Uh, I note with interest that both political parties are moving back from the kind of unfettered global thinking that characterized uh, the, uh, the 1990s and the first decade of the 21st century up until the financial crisis. It's in the sphere of culture, I think, that uh, the shift is both more dramatic and more dangerous. The, the, founding, the founding principles of the national conservative movement, this statement signed by hundreds of people, uh, declares flatly that where there is a majority religion in the country, that that religion ought to be the public religion of the country, which is a which which is a roundabout way of saying that uh, they reject the establishment clause of the U.S. Constitution. They believe that there ought to be an established religion and that minorities should enjoy some carved out space for their own practices, but that the the public mores uh, of the society ought to be dictated by the religious majority if there is one. That is revolutionary. How do they frame that with respect to things like individual rights, which they seem to be opposed to? It's more than just the, the cultural side. I mean, as, as you've alluded to before, their opposition seems to be to, to the very liberal tradition upon which uh, much of our society has grown around. Uh, that is correct. And Hazoni and and his colleagues and followers are say very frankly that the entire tradition based on liberal thought is a mistake. So they do not accept as a philosophical matter or as a practical matter the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Uh, They stumble at that threshold. The rights that we have, they say, are embedded in traditions and can differ from time to time and country to country. Uh, And so the entire way of thinking about abstract rights as, as ways of not only judging a society, but improving it, uh, that entire way of thought, they believe, is a philosophical mistake that leads to dangerous consequences when used as a tool of political practice. Talk about this gathering last week, which attracted not only the true believers with respect to to national conservatism, but attracted political leaders from around the country. Well, as I said in the article uh, to which you referred, 
it attracted a number of U.S. senators, uh, including both senators from Florida and uh, the omnipresent Josh Hawley from Missouri. It also attracted the governor of Florida, uh, who in all probability will be the Republican presidential nominee if Donald Trump decides not to run. And there's a chance that he will be the Republican nominee even if Donald Trump decides to run. So he's a pretty, pretty big deal. And he not only came to the conference, but he delivered uh, what was by conference standards a stem-winding speech that went on for about 50 minutes. So this movement is being taken seriously, not just by other intellectuals, but by serious politicians. One of the things with respect to government power that we talked about before is this this push within this framework for antitrust enforcement and, and, and common carrier regulation and more regulation of banks. How does that and, and why does that fit into this framework? Explain that. It fits into the framework because their argument is, and it's based on this idea of a strong nation, that to have a strong nation, you need a strong economy. And in today's world, where other governments are backing their industries and where we're trying to create and nurture new ones, uh, that you simply, you simply can't thrive as a country unless you're prepared to make aggressive use of national power. Now, this is one area, I would say, where national conservatism has points of overlap with other movements, uh, including people who are very much on the other side of the aisle. Uh, and there are, there are thinkers that I regard as sort of switch hitters uh, who are who are prepared to take their ideas either to the, the populist nationalist wing of, of the Republican Party or for uh, what might be called the, the industrial policy wing of the Democratic Party. And that is not the ap- aspect of national conservatism that troubles me the most. I think those ideas are discussable. And not only that, they can be detached from the anti-liberal framework uh, in which they're now embedded uh, because the idea of a government that acts strongly when necessary uh, to protect industry and to foster economic growth is not the property of any one political party at this point. It used to be the property of a faction within the Democratic Party, but as the threat from China, uh, economic as well as military and diplomatic, has you know, has deepened, I think more and more people are willing to think in this matter, manner, which is why, for example, on a bipartisan basis, uh, a bill was passed just a few weeks ago to support and nurture uh, and national semiconductor production capacity in the United States, and $50 billion was allocated for that purpose. One of the things that, that also seems to fall into this, and maybe it's, it's a, a clearer understanding of what we saw transpire during the pandemic, and particularly with regard to vaccines, but even scientific inquiry itself has come under siege 
from from the national conservatives. Talk about that. I think the the ruckus over the right response to to the pandemic has produced a moment of opportunity for people who are opposed to the status quo. Uh, I don't think all members of the national conservative movement are anti-scientific, but they are skeptical about the role of expertise in public policy, as opposed to what they would call common sense, prudence, the, the wisdom of ordinary people. Uh, that is a live argument. And there are two sides to that argument. I'm the son of a scientist. I deeply believe in the integrity and importance of the scientific enterprise. But as a public policy analyst, I have to acknowledge that the phrase follow the science, which was much in the air uh, during the pandemic, uh, is a little bit misleading because science by itself does not tell you what to do. It provides, it provides facts and causal understandings that can influence what you do. But at the end of the day, science, scientific findings are embedded in a broader network of considerations that shape public policy. Uh, there are trade-offs almost always when large matters of policy are at stake. And science doesn't tell you how to make those trade-offs. Uh, you know, political argument and discussion is what ultimately determines what, what we do. I think it's fair to say that public policy shouldn't violate what we know to be scientifically true. But at the same time, there are many different policies that are consistent with scientific truth, and they can lead in very different directions. Because the question, for example, of how you balance claims of individual liberty, or for that matter, individual security against public health are in practice very difficult ones. Where does their philosophy come down with respect to dissenters, with respect to political dissent? They, they are, as their name suggests, strong believers in national unity. I have no reason to believe that that thinking would necessarily lead them to crack down on dissenters. But the argument from national unity has been used in other countries and from time to time in this country to suppress dissent. That was certainly the case during the First World War, where President Woodrow Wilson made very aggressive use of national power in order to quell the voices that he thought were uh, in danger of undermining national morale or even giving intellectual and political aid and comfort to the Germans. So it, it's a perennial danger. Uh, and I don't want to accuse national conservatives of favoring things that they haven't explicitly said. Yeah, I bring it up because there there are elements of it that we see in the in their kind of hero worship of Orban in Hungary. 
Well, that is true. Uh, that That is true. And they, of course, have an entirely different view of what's going on in Hungary. Uh, they argue that Orban came to power democratically and has remained in power democratically, that that dissent is not suppressed in Hungary, uh, which to some extent is true. But what Orban has done is to achieve near complete government control over the press, which means, for example, in political campaigns that his opponents have a hard time getting a hearing on national television. It is not a level playing field. I don't think a lot of individual dissenters are being thrown into Hungarian jails. Uh, Orban is using the power of government uh, to tilt the argument in his favor uh, by capturing the institutions that are the major uh, vehicles for public argument. Uh, so it's, you know, it's subtler than Vladimir Putin throwing dissenters in jail, right. you know, which is done by the tens of thousands. Uh, but is it, is it consistent with the norms of liberal democracy? No. Uh, you know, and not only has there been an attack on the press, there's been an attack on educational institutions, forcing one major institution, a Central European uh, University, to shut down altogether and to move out of the country. He has captured what used to be an independent judiciary, which was in Hungary, as in many other places, a defender of individual rights and the rule of law. Orban is, I think, what he calls himself, a proponent of illiberal democracy. That means the unfettered power of majorities uh, to override what in this country we would consider to be the inalienable rights of individuals. And uh, it is, you know, to steal a phrase from Tocqueville, you know, it's a form of soft despotism. Finally, there is this sense that so much of the rhetoric that comes out of this national conservative movement is Manichaean, that if they don't succeed in what they're trying to do, that it's the end of civilization from their perspective. That's true, Jeff. They genuinely believe that we have reached a moment of civilizational crisis. Uh, they believe that liberalism, as traditionally understood, has led to progressivism as it's now being practiced, that this progressivism rec uh, recognizes no limits to individual freedom and autonomy. It denies all natural limits. It denies all moral limits in, in the name of unlimited liberation. They do not believe that a decent and moral society can exist on such foundations uh, or that a, a society that's penetrated and shaped by these beliefs can long endure. They are engaged in what think they would acknowledge is a counter-cultural revolution. They do not believe in halfway measures. They, they, if, if you believe as they do that liberalism leads to progressivism, 
and progressivism undermines all of the limits required for a decent society and for social order, then what choice do you have, you know, but to announce a crisis and to proceed on that basis? Professor William Galston, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.